Good morning. This morning's reading is taken from Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then, in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Thanks, Amir. Good morning, everybody. I am thankful to be here this morning. I want to start out by talking about this idea of value. What is value exactly? It's kind of an abstract idea, right? There's some things in this life that we all sort of agree on when it comes to value. You know, a loonie is worth a dollar in Canada, and that's pretty much something everybody agrees on. Uh, But there are other things that are much different. Uh, Take sports, for example. If you've ever been to a stadium or even watched one, uh, like a sporting event on TV, uh, and I guess I'm talking about back when there were crowds during these things, uh, one of the one of the things that would happen is when one team would score, uh, there would be a, a specific group of people that would be really happy about it. Uh, they would be elated and they would cheer. But then there's another group of people that would sulk and frown and complain. What's going on when this happens? Everybody saw the same event, right? But half the people loved it and then the other half of the people hated it. The reason they reacted so differently, I think, is is based on what they valued. Those who value the team that scored are going to be ecstatic, whereas the people who valued the other team will be upset. I saw a crazy example of this about 14 months ago, and maybe some of you have seen this story. Uh, this This isn't a sporting thing, this is an art thing. Uh, What you're looking at here on the screen is a piece of artwork. This masterpiece was created by uh, an Italian artist named Maurizio Catalan. Uh, And and this thing here on the screen sold uh, at a festival in Florida for, get this, uh, $120,000. So when I think about, when, when I think about the value of a banana and some duct tape, uh, for me the numbers just don't quite add up, right? Uh, in fact, this one here looks kind of bruised and, and the, the duct tape, I think, would make it hard to peel anyway. So really, for me, I don't even know if I would take this for free. Um, but clearly, this is where the value of co- uh, the concept of value comes into play. I mean, for me, I do not have the same level of appreciation for this piece of art as some other people do. And therefore, I don't see the same value in it that other people are seeing. Uh, I think this is a natural human intricacy. You know, we can we can have two people looking at the exact same thing, but then they're placing wildly different values on it. And and I want to explore this idea this morning a little more in depth when it comes to the spiritual concept. Uh, when Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven in the scripture reading that uh, that Amir just shared with us from Matthew 13, uh, he compared the kingdom of heaven to a treasure hidden in a field, or a a fine pearl of great worth. Clearly, Jesus saw a tremendous value in the kingdom of heaven. But does everybody see it that way? Well, we know the answer to that is no. 
And we can even read about this in the Bible. When Jesus was addressing a group of religious leaders in Matthew 23, uh, he said this to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. So the Pharisees and the teachers did not see the value in being a part of uh, the, the kingdom that Jesus was talking about. And not only that, but they also wanted to make sure that nobody else saw the value in it either. And this tension kind of rages on between Jesus and, the, and, these, and these leadership groups all throughout the New Testament. But for us, the question remains today. How much is Jesus worth to you? Is discipleship a blessing worth the cost of pursuing? Or is it a burden uh, worth uh, avoiding, really. How will you answer this call? We often talk about the blessings that come along with following Jesus, and we should do that because there are so many. But we don't always talk about the cost. I'm not sure um, why. I mean, we, we, we don't talk about the cost, I think, because maybe it's more uncomfortable. And I'm not talking about the cost in the sense that we are trying to make a payment for uh, for our our relationship, to earn a relationship with Jesus. But I'm talking about the cost in the sense of the level of the commitment that Jesus is calling us to have if, if we are going to follow him. Jesus gives full disclosure on this when he talks about following him and what it means. He He uses words like dying to self and carrying our cross. Uh, to describe that, that process of being his disciple. And to us, this might seem kind of strange or backwards. I mean, why on earth would anybody who's looking to gain followers uh, advertise how difficult it's going to be? I mean, we, we wouldn't see that today probably in, in our present day marketing. Jesus talked about the cost of following him, I think, because the cost and the blessings of following him are inseparable parts of the same thing. I'll just say that again. The cost and the blessings of following Jesus are really inseparable parts of the same thing. And maybe this is a cryptic statement, but I think the concept is easily understood when we can look at a strong and healthy marriage. You know, there's a cost to marriage, right? Uh, And hopefully uh, people understand that when they're going in. I think they usually do. You are committing to be totally loyal to this other person for the rest of your life. If it's going good or bad, if you're having plenty or if you're in want, if you're broke uh, or, if, or if you have lots of money and things are easy, if you're healthy or everybody's sick, no matter what, you're choosing to love and care for this person for the rest of your life. You also commit yourself to being loyal and devoted only to that person meaning that you turn away from pursuing anybody else as long as you're both alive. These are some pretty high costs, right? But point these things out to to some people in a healthy marriage, and they're going to say things like, that's not a cost. That, That devotion, that commitment, that renouncing of all others is exactly what makes this marriage valuable. The cost of being totally devoted to each other is the very thing that makes this relationship worth pursuing. I think it kind of illustrates this idea that Jesus had in mind when he calls us to follow him. 
Anything that we're giving up is not really a loss, but a means of coming into a a relationship with Him that's just so full of tremendous blessings. But how are we doing as Christians at appreciating the value of Jesus? Do we see His calling as a burden or a blessing? I came across uh, some really eye-opening stats about the state of discipleship recently. This study was performed by the, uh, the Barna Research Group. Uh, and published in a book called Growing True Disciples, which Soren Locke shared with me. Uh, now, full disclosure, uh, the data that I'm about to share is 20 years old, and the study was done in the U.S., so we can't exactly directly apply these results to our context, but I thought the data was useful and worth mentioning nonetheless. So the Barna group here talked to over 1,700 people uh, who were self-identifying as Christians. And they found this following information. Uh, Four out of five believers said that having a deep personal commitment to the Christian faith is a top priority for their future. So this is good news. And it's what you would hope to see, I think. The vast majority of believers say that their faith is a top priority to them. The next stat, however, is where things get a little bit troubling. Without giving the people any, uh, any options to choose from, they ask believers this question as well. What is the single most important thing you want to accomplish in your life? And they answered, uh, giving many different answers, but only 20%, a small minority of them, mentioned anything directly related to spiritual outcomes. This means that 80% of believers said their biggest goal was to accomplish something related to this life, or this world, instead of something related to following Jesus. The author of the book, George Barna, summarized the data in this way. In other words, most believers say their faith matters, but few are investing energy into the pursuit of spiritual growth. This is a far cry from the scene that Jesus painted, right? The parable doesn't say that the man found the treasure And then he he made a mental note and went home and and figured, well, I should get around to pursuing that treasure someday. But then he just kind of got distracted with fixing up the house, uh, going to work, and and just sort of forgot about it. No, I mean, this man was so impressed with the treasure that that the Scriptures say that he immediately uh, went after that field with all he had. He saw so much value in having it for himself that he gave up everything else he had in order to get it. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, why are the majority of believers choosing something other than following Jesus as the single most important thing in their life? Have we undervalued the treasure in the field this much? And if we're stuck in this position, how do we make a change? How do we begin to see the value in following Jesus? I firmly believe that when a person clearly understands the value of following him, there will be no need to convince that person to become a disciple. You're actually going to be hard-pressed to hold them back because the desire to follow him will come naturally, just like the desire to pursue that treasure in the field came naturally. Maybe one of the reasons we don't see the value is because we've misunderstood what Jesus is actually calling us to be. This morning I want to look at two views that I think can cause us to misunderstand or undervalue what Jesus is calling us to be as his disciples. 
we'll look at these two views in, in light of Scripture, of course, and ask ourselves if the following, uh, sorry, if following Jesus is a blessing that we should pursue or a burden that we should just avoid. So those two views I want to look at this morning are this, that discipleship is a call to misery, and secondly, that discipleship is a call to abandon our lives. So with the first one, I'm sure many of us have thought about this idea before. That You know, this was a big one for me when I was trying to decide whether or not I wanted to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, I think the misconception stems from how we define fulfillment in our life. It has roots in that, I believe. If fulfillment means getting what we want, or if we define being fulfilled as uh, as how comfortable we are, or how popular we are, or etc., then when Jesus asks us to follow him and he tells us that we're going to have to sacrifice what we want or we're going to have to get uncomfortable or that uh, we might be mistreated because of him, then our chances of seeing this as a good idea are, are probably pretty slim. But if we listen to Jesus, we'll see that he's telling us that we've got it all backwards from the start. The problem happens when we start defining fulfillment in our life based on our selfish desires. When we get off uh, on the wrong foot like that, everything else kind of goes downhill from there. This is already pretty self-evident, I think, even without Jesus having to spell it out. Think about your life. Think about all the things you value in your life. The, the, things, like, uh, the things like your family, your friends, your career, your spouse, uh, your, your degree, Uh, Maybe your friendships, the qualities that you really admire in yourself, like honesty, hard work, integrity. Did any of those things come from taking the selfish or easy route? All of these things take work, right? They take sacrifice. They take effort. They even cause us discomfort. But despite all that, they are also some of the most fulfilling parts of our lives. I think Jesus illustrated this so well in the parable that he taught in John chapter 12. He said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. For whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. It's easy to see why we value our own wants and desires so much. I mean, pretty much everything else outside of the words of Scripture will tell us that the things in this world are where it's at. You know, more money, more stuff, more fun, more doing what you want to do making sure you're happy, making sure you're safe, you're comfortable, etc., etc. Is this not the meaning of life today? Is this not what we're taught from a very young age to strive for? Where we're bombarded every day with this idea of building a safe and secure kingdom for ourselves, where we become our own God, where we provide for ourselves, where we keep ourselves safe, and where we get to decide what we do in every aspect of our lives. Worship of self is one of the biggest idols in our world today, and I think we would be totally naive if we thought that it hadn't affected the church. 
But what does Jesus say here in this passage? He says that we severely limit ourselves when we live only for ourselves. Okay, we can probably get behind that. But then he says that the way to remedy this is to fall to the ground and die. I mean, in the context here, Jesus is is literally talking about the fact that he is about to die through Roman crucifixion just just a few uh, a, a little while after he's speaking these words. <clears throat> he realizes that the mission he is on will cost him everything, but he also knows that the very act of giving up his life, even though it might seem like a loss, will actually result in the biggest gain. Just like that one kernel of wheat falling to the ground. The act of that one seed deciding to live for something bigger than its own existence results in the creation of many, many more seeds who will have an opportunity to do the same thing. It's such a beautiful metaphor. But it's more than a metaphor, right? It's, it's a calling. It's a calling to everyone who wants to join Jesus' kingdom. It's a calling to follow in the footsteps of our Master. Jesus is our example to follow, and, and many of the early Christians that we read about in the Bible, they literally had to die for their faith. Uh, today, thankfully, uh, we live in a different time, at least in Canada, where dying for our faith is, is not all that likely to happen. But we still have a choice to either live for ourselves or to live for Him. One path, the path that's living for ourselves, is based on a lie about what fulfillment is, and it will bring us death. But the other path is based on the truth, and the truth will bring us life. This is spelled out very clearly here, I think, in James 4, where James says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, enmity is a word we don't use very often, but it means putting yourself at odds with something else. And in this case, we're talking about God. You know, you're basically saying, I know what you're offering sounds really good, but I think I found a path that's even better than that. Uh, and, And this is the reason, you know, that we can't be halfway committed to following Jesus because his path is the path that leads to life. But the path of self-advancement is, is the path that's headed in the exact opposite direction. I mean, we can't walk north and south at the same time. Jesus doesn't call us to full, to, uh, to full commitment to him because he wants our lives to be miserable. On the contrary, he wants us to have the best possible life. But he's trying to get us to see the truth about which path actually leads in that direction. Jesus wants us to see the purpose of our lives from an, an eternal perspective, and he also wants us to, to, he also wants us to see uh, that there is true and lasting value that comes along with following him in this life today as well. Uh, there is certainly a cost, for sure, in the sense that we have to be willing to leave every other pursuit behind. But like that exclusive commitment in in a marriage or the commitment and sacrifice that comes along with raising children, this type of cost, I mean, it doesn't really seem like a cost once you begin to experience the tremendous sense of fulfillment and richness and purpose that it brings. 
I wanted to share a passage. It's rather long, but I think it lays out some of these these blessings that we're talking about so beautifully. From First Peter one chapter, First uh, Peter one three to nine. It says, "Praise be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead." and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, uh, who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, living for ourselves will probably be easier, but in the end we will realize that it was only a counterfeit and it only lasted for a short time. Following Jesus results in blessings that last forever. Just look at what it says here. Uh, We can look forward to an inheritance in heaven. We also get to live a life right now where we are promised to be shielded by God's power. The scriptures point out here to us that having a genuine desire to follow Christ is worth more than gold. And following Him will bring us a sense of inexpressible and glorious joy. And ultimately, the salvation of our souls. Do you see the treasure here? How could anything in this life ever compare to these benefits? Is Jesus trying to make us miserable? The Scriptures show us that following Him is actually the path away from misery. The things that we need to give up in order to have this relationship with Him are not really a loss at all, but they're a gain. Because we're gaining so much, something that's so much better. And that's the exact conclusion that the Apostle Paul came to when he looked at his life, backed on his life that was focused on self-advancement. Check out what he says here in Philippians 3. I love these, I love these words. I once thought that these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. Paul saw the treasure in the field for what it really was. He saw the infinite value in following Jesus and it became clear to him how much there was to gain from being that kernel of wheat that fell to the ground. He saw the pursuits of self-advancement in a much different light now. He called them garbage by comparison to what it meant uh, and to what it meant to him to be gaining Christ and to knowing Christ and to following Jesus. What an awesome testimony. So we've been trying to assess the value of following Jesus. The stats tell us that most believers see their commitment to Jesus as a top priority, 
But yet few are investing much energy into actually pursuing spiritual growth. Maybe we're undervaluing Jesus' offer because we've misunderstood what it means to be a disciple. One of the misconceptions, as we just talked about, is that following Jesus is not worth it because, well, he's just calling us to a life of misery. Well, I I hope by now that the scriptures have allowed us to rule that idea out completely. Another misconception that I want to look at is that Jesus is calling us to abandon our lives. Let's try and understand this view a little bit more clearly and, and see if it holds up. Some of the strongest statements that Jesus makes about following him come from Luke 14, and these aren't for the faint of heart. Uh, look at what he says here to the crowds uh, who are listening to him teach in, in Luke 14. I'm going to read 26 and 27, and, and then I'll throw 33 in at the end too. If anyone comes to me, And does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And in verse 33 he adds, In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Wow. I mean, this is a difficult teaching, right? I mean, we love our family. We love our spouses. Is Jesus teaching us here that we have to hate them? Is he teaching us that we have to abandon them, along with everything else that we have in order to follow him? Should we conclude from verse 33 here that, uh, that Jesus wants us to be homeless and without a family if we're, if we're going to try to be his disciple? I think it's important that we spend a bit of time digging into this. There are a couple of things about the language that Jesus uses here that I think that we need to consider in order to help us better understand what he meant when he said these words. First of all, the word hate is an important one to touch on. In the Jewish culture, when Jesus was alive, the term hate, it was used in the absolute sense, like we still use it in today, like, you know, I hate broccoli or... I hate the coronavirus, something like that. But it could also be used in a way of comparing two things and ranking them in order. Another way to convey the meaning behind what Jesus was saying in English here would be uh, to say that his words meant this, whoever does not love their family less than they love me is not worthy of me. We know that this is what, what Jesus had in mind because he has a similar teaching from Matthew's gospel But he uses different language. He says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And we see another example of using the hate in this comparative or relative sense from the Old Testament in Genesis 29, where it says, so Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And serve Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So verse 30, uh, we see that uh, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And then that was the equivalent to the meaning in verse 31 where it said that Leah was hated. Now, it didn't mean that Jacob literally hated Leah, but that he loved Leah more or loved Rachel more. Sorry, like it says in verse 30. 
And so this, I hope you're understanding, this is how the, the idea of the word hate can be used in a relative sense. We don't use it that way in English, but in the Jewish culture, uh, that was something that they did. So back to, back to uh, our verse here. We can see that Jesus wasn't talking about showing literal hate towards the people in our family or anyone for that matter. I mean, after all, this is the, the same Jesus who taught us to love everybody, even our enemies. Um, and so, as one commentary suggested, what Jesus is really requiring here is first place in a person's heart. You know, he doesn't tiptoe around this issue either, and he makes it really clear that he needs to come first. Unless Jesus outranks even the people that are closest to us, like our family and our spouses, we cannot claim to be following him. And so what about this other statement here in verse 33? That we must give up everything we have to follow Jesus. Does this mean that we need to liquidate all of our assets and clean out our bank accounts in order to be his disciple? Again, I think it's important to look at this one more closely as well. Maybe one way to find the answer to this is to, is to look at how the early church functioned. Many will recognize the names Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, they were a, a husband and wife from the, from the early church times, and they were a powerhouse, an absolute powerhouse in the, in the early church. And they worked very closely with the Apostle Paul. They were intertwined with, with his ministry efforts. And he wrote about them a lot because of that. And look at what he says here uh, when he wanted to greet them in Romans 16. He said, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. And we get another glimpse of, of how the early church functioned here from Acts 2. 44 to 47, where it says that all the believers were gathered together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Just a beautiful picture of the early church, I think. So what can we see here? Well, we see that both Priscilla and Aquila, the husband and wife, and the believers in the early church, well, they both had their own homes. Uh, and we also see that the believers in Acts had possessions as well that they were able to sell. So were they disobeying Jesus' command to give up everything that they had in order to follow him? I think we can see pretty clearly here that what Jesus had in mind uh, by giving up everything was not in the sense that we would literally get rid of everything that we owned, but that we would give up control over everything that we had. We see this playing out here in both of these examples. Priscilla and Aquila owned a home, yes, but clearly they had given up their exclusive rights to the use of that home. Uh, because they had dedicated it for use in the kingdom instead. And they used it to host the church that met in their house. And as for the possessions of the members of the, uh, er, the early church in the Acts account, while they still had possessions in their care, they saw those possessions as belonging to Jesus and that they were happy to give them up 
in order for the growth of the kingdom whenever it was required or necessary. So going back to Luke 14.33, another, another clue to understanding this is, is to look at the word give up. And if we look at the Greek meaning for that word, it actually means to renounce interest in something. So what we see from these examples in Scripture and we see from the definition that it isn't really about randomly just getting rid of all your stuff, but instead it's turning ownership over, uh, it's turning over ownership of everything that you have to Jesus. Uh, Paul talks about this concept more in depth here in, in 1 Timothy 6. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put hope in their wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put hope in but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to be good, uh, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I think he was referring again to that idea of that, that, that real treasure in the field. We see from these examples uh, that the early church did not view their stuff as their own stuff anymore. When they decided to be a disciple, uh, things changed. The call to discipleship is not a calling to abandon everything in our lives. Instead, it's a calling to repurpose everything in our lives. The members of the early church didn't get rid of everything they had, but in the same way, they were willing to part or share anything that they had. They spent their time actually even looking for ways to, to give things away because nothing was more important for them than advancing the kingdom of heaven instead of their own kingdom. When they, they saw their stuff, they saw it as not their own stuff anymore because they had caught a glimpse of something that was worth so much, so much more than themselves. It was something that was so much bigger than their own lives. I think many of us struggle with this, right? Like we, we struggle to understand how we can be totally devoted to Jesus and still do other things like work and support our families. We may struggle to figure out how to turn over all of our possessions to the kingdom when, well, we still have needs to take care of as well. Uh, some of you may recognize this slide because I've shared it before. Uh, but when we think about our priorities we might give a list that looks something like this. Uh, you know, the order may change depending on who you are, but essentially the, the main point is that Jesus is at the top and then everything else kind of comes after that. You know, and as long as we give the majority of our time and our attention to Jesus, we have him as our first priority, right? But I think there's some problems with this model. I mean, if we were to give 2% of our energy and efforts to our hobbies, 8% to our work, 15% uh, to our friends, 20% to the church, 25% to our family, and then 30%, the majority, the lion's share, to following Jesus. I mean, Jesus is number one, right? But he still only gets 30%. I think that's the problem with organizing our lives in this way. It doesn't do justice to the level of devotion that Jesus is calling us to. I like this way of illustrating it more. I find this more helpful. You know, following Jesus is represented by filling a cup with water. 
But instead of just pouring out one area of my life to fill this cup, I mean, every area of my life is being poured into this effort. I like this description or this depiction, I guess, more because it represents a change in the way we think about everything, about every aspect of our life, where every aspect becomes directed towards the same goal of following Jesus. I believe this is a lot closer to what he had in mind when he calls us to give him, every, give him everything and give up everything for him to follow him. We need to give up everything in the sense that we turn control of everything over to him. Every asset, every resource we have becomes useful to him for the growth of his kingdom instead of our own self-advancement. So this morning we've looked into the call that Jesus made to come and follow him. He calls us to turn over everything in our lives to him and subject everything to his leadership and direction. I mean, this is a high cost. And Jesus definitely doesn't sugarcoat it. But this morning, I hope we've been able to see the reason why Jesus is calling us to such a level of dedication. Jesus is not calling us to be miserable. He's not calling us to abandon the responsibilities in our lives. And he's not calling us to be perfect either. But he is calling us to turn the control of our lives completely over to him. Jesus wants to give us a more fulfilling life now and also a hope for the future. But all of this is only possible when we lay down our lives and follow him. I hope that there are some people listening to this who are beginning to see the value in what Jesus is offering. If that's you and how you can get started on being one of his disciples, I invite you to me. Jesus explained how people can start this journey when he spoke these words to him and uh, when he spoke these words to his followers in Matthew 28. He said to make disciples by, by baptizing people and then teaching those same people to obey everything that he had commanded us to do. Baptism is a declaration to God and to others that you're ready to stop living for yourself and begin living a new life for Jesus instead. The Bible teaches us that when we make this decision, God gives us two amazing blessings right away. He forgives our sins and he comes into in, inside of us to live inside of us through his Holy Spirit. But we need to know that baptism is just the first step. It's not like we follow Jesus into the waters of baptism and then just head back to the same way of life. <laughs> if we've learned anything from our time this morning, I hope, that, I hope that you understand that this isn't what Jesus had in mind when he was talking about discipleship. He wants to lead us into the water, yes, but that's only the very beginning. After that, he wants to lead us out into the world out into our workplaces, into our circles of friends and family? Are we still going to follow him at that point? He may want to lead us in a direction where we have to leave things behind. We may have to leave our hobbies, our habits, a job even, maybe our possessions, our money, even our family and friends. Will we be willing to keep following him then? What if he says that uh, what if the things that he commands us to say and the things that he commands us to stand for make us unpopular? Are we still going to be on board? 
When we say yes to following Jesus, we're not just saying yes to getting into the baptistry. We're saying, I've committed myself to you. Whatever you want to do, wherever you want to take me, and no matter what the cost. Jesus gives us a lot to think about in this parable. And I hope that the scriptures we've looked at this morning have helped reveal to us again a truth that many of us already know because we've experienced it over and over. You know, that these costs that we were talking about are not really costs at all when you consider the immense blessings that come along with following Jesus. You know, not only for eternity, but also every single day that we get to walk with Him today. What could be better than living a life focused on the things that are eternal and have lasting value? Anything that this life offers is just so temporary. And it pales, into, it pales in comparison with the blessings that Jesus is, is offering us when we come along and follow Him. We're going to end off with a song called, All to Jesus I Surrender. This is an old song. It was actually published in 1896. But the lyrics are deep. They're personal. And I think they're still just as relevant today as they were when, when they were first written. I hope it will help us uh, as we sing this song to reflect on what we've talked about this morning. And if you're a Christian listening to this, I just want you to look at these charts and ask yourself one question. Is my relationship with Jesus better characterized as a fan or a zealous follower? Maybe you're realizing this morning that you've decided to make Jesus' kingdom a part of your life instead of making your life a part of Jesus' kingdom. According to the stats, this is not an uncommon thing. And honestly, it's much easier to stay comfortable and to sort of dabble in this idea of following Jesus. You know, to look the part, to say the right things, even to believe the right things, but ultimately not really committing ourselves to follow Him. Jesus is calling all of us this morning to put those ways behind to die to ourselves, and to follow him instead. May God bless us all as we answer this call. Oh, Jesus.